Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, Susan, are they stripping you of your security clearance? For my erratic comments and behavior. Frenzied. Frenzied commentary. The increasingly frenzied commentary. Wait, Ben, you also engage in frenzied commentary. But I don't have a security clearance. There you go. You can't strip what I don't have. In in fact, if you define frenzied commentary in its broadest sense, really no one at the Brookings Institution should ever have or ever get. A security clearance. It's right. Quality, impact, frenzied Frenzied commentary. (laughs) (laughs) That's us. Um, Well, you know what I what I really think about John Brennan's security clearance getting revoked. What? Squirrel. (laughs) It is. I agree. Right. Just a distraction. So just everybody register, vote. I think John Brennan's (laughs) going to be all right, guys. I do. (laughs) I think he'll be fine. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Frenzied Commentary Edition. I'm Tamara Wittes. I'm here in the hosting chair, sitting very awkwardly in Shane's absence with my friends and yours, Susan Hennessy. Hi. Benjamin Wittes. Hey. And our special guest today, Scott Anderson. So good to be here. I just want to point out that unlike Shane, you are not wearing super cool socks. I'm wearing no socks. I have no sock game. Scott, at what all. are your socks like? Show us. A bland navy. Ugh, a navy blue. I Very got these. disappointing. Oh, Ben Ooh. has good socks. Ben's got Charlie Brown socks. But I, I actually think <laughs> Beg that. your pardon. <laughs> they're brown and yellow striped. Those are Charlie Brown socks. What else are they? Ben, Charlie Brown is a cartoon character. <laughs> <laughs> but I think more than sock game, what we're really missing in Shane's absence is segue game. I'm actually mm-hmm. highly anxious about my own. It is a lot harder than it looks. Well, yeah, don't be <laughs> self-conscious about that. We'll just rate you after each seg- <laughs> segment. I got a lot of feedback after my hosting, and you'll notice that I did not volunteer this week to do it. I, so. I noticed that, and Ben also did not volunteer this week We all week just to touched our noses before yeah. Tammy. Okay, I'm it for this week, so listeners, please forgive me. But... Today on the podcast, uh, as always, we are going to unpack three national security topics for you. First, Paul Manafort's trial on bank fraud is headed to the jury this week after the prosecution wrapped its case and the defense didn't really present a case. So what have we learned about Manafort, about the Trump campaign, and about the broader but still mysterious story of La Russe? Second... Congress passes and President Trump signs a new National Defense Authorization Act, uh, including many provisions written to constrain the executive branch. But President Trump's signing statement is pushing back. And finally, FBI agent Peter Strzok is fired by the Justice Department. Is this the end of the trysting, texting FBI agent saga? Or is this just blood in the water for a bigger purge at the Justice Department? 
Let's just spend 10 minutes deciding how to pronounce his name once and for all. It is pronounced struck. Yeah. Can we spend another 10 minutes figuring out which fake Twitter account is actually Peter Struck? Actually, Twitter there's account. a real Peter Struck Twitter account. It is and verified. It is now verified and, uh, and it follows both Susan and me. Wow. Which oh, we're kind of proud of. Okay. Well, more frenzy commentary, you. guys. Let's hear it. <laughs> okay. So let's start with Paul Manafort's trial. Uh, closing arguments are happening as we speak. The trial is going to go to the jury today. And basically, the um, the prosecution was using its closing argument to sort of come back after a lot of uh, tough challenges from the judge to try and create a clear narrative that Paul Manafort consistently uh, lied about uh, the money that he had in order to avoid paying taxes and then lied to banks when he didn't have money and wanted to get more so that he could get loans that he should not have gotten. Ben, you you were suggesting that uh, that it might not take too long to get a verdict in this case. Well, I would say the longer the jury is out, the better it is for Paul Manafort because the uh, presentation of evidence that uh, Paul Manafort was uh, – not on the level in his tax filings was pretty overwhelming. And I think if he manages to uh, convince uh, a jury to spend a whole lot of time deliberating about it, that will suggest that the defense did a better job than a lot of people assume. Um, my assumption is uh, that or, – or maybe that the judge uh, – did a good job on behalf of the defense. Um, but my assumption is that the evidence is very powerful and that a jury will not spend a whole lot of time with it. And, but, you know, maybe that's just me. I mean, one thing I was struck by was, you know, we didn't really learn a ton of new information. It turns out Paul Manafort is super duper corrupt. Uh, I think everybody knew that before. Uh, people might have even known that before he joined the Trump campaign. Um, so whenever you sort of think about, well, you know, I think some people expected sort of genuine bombshells to come out, right? The Mueller indictments have all included sort of juicy tidbits of information. I think anyone who was looking for that is probably disappointed. Um, you know, there, there was some interest stuff. I think the, the most sort of interesting piece of evidence was this email that he sent to uh, to Jared Kushner. Uh, so uh, sort of a shady bank dealing with the bank's CEO, Stephen Koch, uh, sort of intervening on Paul Manafort's behalf in order to give him this very large personal loan, despite bank officials at the bank raising concerns about fraud at the time. Uh, uh, the CEO intervenes in order to give this uh, uh, loan to Manafort. And then lo and behold, is seeking uh, a role in the Trump administration, R-O-L-L, -L, in his email, in which he ranks the various things that he would like to be. Uh, so there's one list for all of the um, high-ranking high administrative positions, and then he very kindly ranked the preferred ambassadorships in a separate list. So that was nice of him. And Paul Manafort actually forwarded this suggestion on to Jared Kushner, suggesting that this individual be secretary of the army, to which Jared Kushner responds, on it, exclamation point. <laughs> um, so I do think that, you know, one, it does show that after Manafort was pushed out of the campaign because of this ledger that the New York Times uh, published, uh, you know, alleging sort of all this corruption in Ukraine, uh, the campaign was still obviously an ongoing conduct, uh, contact with this man. He was obviously part of this sort of crony structure of staffing the administration. 
administration, in, including national security positions or positions that are relevant at least to uh, you know to military personnel with loyalists. You know that's clearly sort of the only the only sort of relevant thing. You know I, I think in some sense I, I agree with Ben. We're going to see a verdict quickly. This is a really quick trial. Um, the verdict here is just the beginning. It's not the end because one there's a whole other trial that we're going to have a month from now and so, a much juicier one. Right, a more so. interesting one because it's going to be on the Farah questions or things that are closer to the core collusion. The other thing is whether or not Paul Manafort was using this uh, round of trial as a test, right? So uh, whether or not he's going to see if he's uh, he's convicted, if he then is going to decide to cooperate in exchange for a more lenient sentence uh, or or, uh, or you know more lenient treatment in the in the next in the trial. Other trial. So yeah. I sort of think that um, you know it's it's going to be a little bit anticlimactic because no matter what happens, it's it's not the end of the story. It's not even the end of the Paul Manafort story. We're we're just kind of at the beginning. But in terms of the connection between Manafort and potential collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, I mean, not only was this trial itself not particularly revealing, the email that you cited being one of the very few times the Trump campaign actually appears in the narrative of this case, but the next trial may not necessarily touch directly on the Trump campaign's connections to Russia either, right? So I think it was really revealing in one sense or, or sort of had was relevant in one sense, and that's how deeply in debt Paul Manafort was and how precarious his financial situation was and the notion that at this very moment he is, in which he's engaging in all of this fraud, he's in real financial stress, he has all of these foreign entanglements, he then decides to go work for the Trump campaign for free. I think that is sort of like the dot, dot, dot that that is has bearing on that on the other stuff. Uh huh. So he's he's vulnerable. He's open to exploitation or to leverage. And at this moment, he decides that it's in his personal interest to go work for Donald Trump. What does that tell you, Scott? Yeah, I mean, the thing that struck me, particularly in reading through some of the narrative descriptions that we got today of the closing arguments, is that this trial really looked like a pretty by-the-book white-collar prosecution trial for these sorts of violations. And part of my past life before I was a lawyer was being a paralegal for federal prosecutors doing these sorts of trials in New York. And this could have been any one of those trials. You've got a very careful walking through of the jury about a lot of financial information, a lot of complicated evidence. But 12 days is not that long for that sort of trial for these sorts of charges and this amount of money. You have some talk about what the money spent on, some color images about ostrich jackets and fancy oriental rugs and things like that, which come in. And then you see a closing argument that really hits the point and says, hey, we're just going to walk you through this and show each of these transactions violated these very clear laws about disclosure obligations. And that's it. It's a very straightforward. It doesn't need to get in all of this. I do think that you saw prosecutors right trying to play a very neat game here saying – we saw clear violations of the law here. There's not much to politicize here. Um, a little bit of color, a little bit of information came in about broader relationships about Manafort, how it fits in the bigger picture here. And more of that very well may come out when you start talking about FARA violations, these other things that deal with these sorts of relationships. But so far, they're trying to keep this very close to the chest, a much more conventional uh, sort of trial. So, And I think that is the ultimate evidence uh, that there is something deeply connected about Paul Manafort to La Faire Russe, because everything else that is just marginal criminal conduct of a normal variety, Bob Mueller has kicked two other prosecutors. 
Uh, so even if it seems like it's so, like distantly related, right? So the Stormy Daniels, Michael Cohen stuff, he kicks to the Southern District. People who are lobbyists who are interfacing with Paul Manafort, he kicks to uh, the Southern District of New York. But the Paul Manafort tax evasion stuff, which on its face has nothing to do with La Faire Russe, so much so that the judge assiduously kick, keeps out any reference to Russia, Bob Mueller keeps for himself. And the question is why? And the answer to that question is uh, that he has some very deep interest in Paul Manafort. And we don't know the nature of that interest yet, but I think a lot actually turns on that question. I think it's exactly right. One thing I do wonder is whether or not, I, I don't think Bob Mueller sort of is following the, the PR headlines or his approval rating, but yeah, I, I- that's really, that's exactly, his that's MO. His thing, you know? he is, uh, He's not going to be thrilled he, if he is. <laughs> he really pays attention to the frenzied commentary. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, but, but whether or not this is of sort of strategic significance, a win or a loss here, that's a lot of people are sort of focused on, you know, you know, if if this is a conviction, you know, does that uh, put a little bit more wind in the sails, uh, steal the spine of members of Congress, and and on sort of the the inverse, if he loses, uh, is that going to embolden people who are trying to shut down the Mueller investigation, saying it's just a witch hunt? There's no there there. You know, I, I think he's overwhelmingly likely to be convicted. Um, you know, but that's that I I don't actually know how that will play out in practice. Did you have a final comment, Scott? Well, I was just going to say, you know, there was a time where this sort of outcome would have been utterly shocking. The idea that a former campaign manager for the president who was recruited by him and as a close associate was convicted of or is about to be, it seems, convicted of these sorts of crimes and so credibly alleged would have been really, really shocking. I just think it's a sign of how much our thresholds have been raised for what is actually shocking at this point that we are all treating this as humdrum. No well, collusion. Well, more than that, you know, let's remember this campaign ran on Drain the Swamp, and this guy <laughs> is turning out to be the swampiest swamp creature. They, they drained the swamp by drinking it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now they're regurgitating it all over us. Oh, what a lovely image with which to seg attempt a segue to our next topic. So... Speaking of swamps. Pretty good segue. That was kind of a meta segue. <laughs> <laughs> you you segue by I'm talking now going about to segue. segue. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm referencing a segue now as I segue <laughs> to our second topic, Scott. Um, so the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, which passed this week, which President Trump signed in front of a uh, a lovely backdrop of adoring uniformed uh, troops. Uh, and he held up his signature to display it to their applause. The NDAA is kind of a must-pass bill, right? Uh, must-pass for practical reasons. It's kind of a must-sign bill for presidents because they never want to look like they're not supporting the military. But it also this year became a little bit of a tug-of-war between the legislative and executive branches because there are a bunch of foreign policy national security issues on which there's some bipartisan concern in Congress, right, that got reflected in the language of the bill. Last night, hours after the signing in front of the uniformed troops, uh, President Trump issued a signing statement in which he basically says to all of those congressional constraints, blah, I'm not going to respect those uh, provisions of the law. So um, are we now set up for a, an executive legislative showdown? 
Well, let me take a, a step back, I guess, to talk about the signing statement, which I think is sort of interesting. Um, you know, signing statements like this are a controversial practice, but something the executive branch has been engaged in for many, many years. Um, and this particular signing statement, in my mind, reading through it and looking back to some of the provisions it references, isn't actually that big a departure from what we've seen prior administrations do, at least in the types of arguments. There are a couple of provisions in the NDAA that seek to dictate the level of uh, certain arms deployments or the level of certain troops deployments. And they say, well, that interferes with the president's commander in chief authority. There are other ones that direct the president to enter into an MOU. Uh, sort of international agreement with a foreign government or certain takes certain other diplomatic steps. And they push back and they say, Congress, you can't dictate to us that we have to do that. That is our core function as the executive branch. Um, there are other ones that push back on things like reporting requirements saying that we're going to do this inconsistent with executive privilege. And we don't know exactly what that means because that depends on what their idea of what executive privilege is and how much documents that withhold, that withholds. But that aside, this sort of ambiguity, the signing statement doesn't make that many new arguments beyond what I think a lot of executive branch lawyers would make in response to these provisions. The reason why I think it's really notable is that it feels the need to address 40 or 50 of these provisions in the NDAA. And it's a sign of just how many steps Congress has put in the NDAA that really do kind of push back against the administration, particularly in the foreign policy national security area. So – so the NDAA, and I have to uh, interject that you, along with colleagues here at Tate Chambers and Molly Reynolds, had a great extensive breakdown of all these provisions in the NDAA. Only and, slightly shorter than the NDAA. Well. <laughs> <laughs> um, great piece on Lafayette uh, that came out yesterday, uh, and I commend it to all of our listeners. But I guess, you know, what I what I see from your analysis of all of these provisions is a level of heightened scrutiny and heightened discomfort on the part of the legislative branch that even if the president doesn't say, okay, I agree that this provision is binding and I'm going to respect it, these are all warning shots across the bow, mainly to the Defense Department, some to Treasury and State on on other provisions, but basically saying, don't piss us off on these subjects, right? So if it's uh, a provision relating to refueling Saudi or Emirati aircraft engaged in the campaign on Yemen um, because of congressional concern over the way those countries are conducting the war and the number of civilians that are dying, it's basically saying, hey, Defense Department, push our allies a little harder on how they're conducting the Yemen war and whether they can end it, right? So there's still plenty of room without complying with the letter of the law for the executive branch to accommodate congressional concern, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you basically see these provisions fall into three buckets. You see ones that are efforts to push the administration in a particular direction. They require them to generate reports or to provide information to Congress on an issue. They try and be kind of a decision-forcing mechanism. You see a second bucket that really constrains the certain authorities the president may be using that Congress is worried about the way they're using it. An example of this is one provision in here cuts down on the way that the president can use acquisition and cross-servicing agreements, a DOD-type agreement to share material with certain foreign countries, it says essentially you can't use that, those sorts of agreements to transfer funds to one country knowing that that equipment is then going to a third country with whom you don't have an AXA and you wouldn't be eligible for an AXA. Um, that's a real restriction that relates to transfers that people thought might have been happening in relation to Yemen. And so Congress said, we're not going to let this happen anymore. Uh, and there are a few of those. The third ones really, which I think are some of the more remarkable provisions in here, 
I would say are kind of like guardrails. There are these mechanisms that try and put up barriers for some extreme actions that the administration could choose to take down the road that worries Congress. The biggest examples of this in my mind are regarding North Korea. In North Korea, there's one provision that says the president can't, without having the Secretary of Defense make a finding that doing so would in no way compromise regional security, change the level of U.S. troops deployed to South Korea below 22,000. That's a pretty big move, particularly because there are at least rumors that President Trump was considering doing exactly that sort of move, either as a carrot to give to the Kim Jong-un regime, negotiations regarding denuclearization, or as a way to put pressure on the South Korean government or both in trade negotiations. Uh, A similar provision there is they also set up this whole monitoring program that says that when President Trump finally gets that denuclearization agreement, we need to start seeing reports to Congress about what's actually happening with it from intelligence officials. Again, this is a transparency mechanism. It's saying that we're going to put ourselves in a position to be able to hold President Trump accountable if he enters into these sorts of agreements. And when you have so many of these lined up in different areas, I do think that it's a sign that Congress has some concerns with how this administration is using some of the authority that it gives it and is trying to put up certain limitations or constraints on that. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, you know, my sort of takeaway uh, from the NDA, and I, I should, I, I should begin by, you know, uh, confessing that I haven't read it, in part because my old job used to be reading the NDA, <laughs> not one time, not two times, but dozens of times, every <laughs> single word. And now I don't have to, and so I won't do it. But I did read Scott's uh, excellent summary of it. Um, you know, so, so my sort of takeaway is one, uh, I actually think it's interesting uh, that Congress appears to be working pretty well in this area, sort of for all the crazy dysfunction. And I find it interesting that it doesn't appear that there's been any sort of crazy provision that was implemented at the last minute. And so, you know, people who aren't familiar with how the, the last minute passage of these bills work is, you know, their drafts are circulating for months and weeks and weeks, and it sort of builds up. And then at the sort of the end, the floor process all of the amendments are being, all of these amendments are being offered and, and every agency that possibly has equities in it is, has lots of lawyers looking at every single amendment, trying to talk to the various committees, trying to talk to various members about what the impacts of that are. I mean, it really is wild. And, and a lot of times you end up with provisions that the executive branch really objects to, uh, or things happen that people don't realize until after the fact. Oh God, that got passed. We didn't even realize it. So maybe that will come forward sort of in the future. Um, you know, but that is to me the sign that, that there wasn't anything crazy in it. I, I think is a sign that at least there's some kind of functional, I don't know if the NSC, but interagency executive branch process uh, that or Congress is uh, is leading that process for itself. Um, yeah, I think for me, the, the provisions that I, I did sort of find, you know, most interesting were, uh, you know, the election interference stuff, you know, is I think the big question is, is Trump going to do anything about it, right? I think the signing statements is basically, I plan to ignore it, uh, you know, just like he's ignored sanctions in areas in which he actually doesn't have the discretion to just totally disregard Congress, and he has. Um, you know, the other thing that I think is remarkable is just moments like that they felt the need to direct the Department of Defense not to use any funds to recognize the sovereignty of Crimea. That is crazy. It is crazy that Congress feels the need to do these things in the first instance. And, you know, there's been a lot of um, crazy domestic headlines lately, just with the Manafort trial, with the Apprentice tapes, with Omarosa's book tour, you know, and, and a lot of these really critical foreign policy questions, I think, have sort of fallen off the front page. And this is a real reminder of on how many different fronts this administration is 
so far from anything we, we ever thought Congress would even have to weigh in on. And I, it's sort of similar to Scott's final point before of just like, we don't even notice how far we've been moved. Yeah, I think that there is, um, I, I think you're right that it's evidence of the Senate working across party lines on a certain set of issues. But it's also evidence of, regardless of what a lot of Republican senators, including Lindsey Graham, who helped shepherd this bill, regardless of what they may say about their faith in President Trump's judgment or decision making ability or whatever, what they put in the law suggests a level of discomfort. Ben. Yeah, that is, I think that's the critical point that, you know, you have on the one hand, a bunch of Republican senators who will not criticize the president publicly or who will do so only in these sort of mild tweets or mild statements. And then you have a lot of people on the left who say, why don't you do something, right? And this is actually doing something, right? In a whole lot of little but very important ways this is when Congress does something. One of the things, it's not the only thing. There's also investigative hearings. There's also subpoenas. There's also, but one of the things that it does is it legislates constraints. And when that, when you do that and, uh, you don't necessarily have to issue press releases saying, you know, today we zeroed out the president's budget for recognizing, uh, Russian sovereignty over Crimea. You can just actually do it. Um, and so I do think it is actually worth for everybody who's kind of wringing their hands and saying, why don't Republican senators do more, which is a position I share. You know, this is actually one of the things it looks like when they do more. You know, yeah. I, I think it's worth noting that they're doing more not just to constrain the president, but they're also doing more just in terms of policy that is within the purview of Congress. Um, and I actually thought that one of the interesting provisions of this law was a new requirement that um, foreign press outlets that are basically government sponsored propaganda like RT. Um, but maybe also like Al Jazeera, we'll see, uh, will now be required to file with the Federal Communications Commission and they'll get treated differently from other foreign media organizations, you know, legislating in the authorization language related to the National Security Council that somebody on the NSC staff has to be designated to deal with influence operations. So, I mean, these are things that are within Congress's purview Oh, and the other one, of course, is um, trying to get more clarity on advise and assist, you know, train and equip operations like the ones that resulted in some deaths of U.S. forces uh, earlier this year. And so these are things that, you know, whether it's Trump in the White House or somebody else, Congress ought to be legislating on. And it's good to see that as dysfunctional as they may be in other areas, they're at least doing that. Yeah, and I think it's worth bearing in mind as well that the NDAA here and the president's signing statement that he issued in response is just two more steps in a kind of a dance that's been ongoing and is going to continue past this point around a lot of these policy issues and related legislative provisions. Most of the ones that the president objects to in his signing statement, he came out, his administration, I should say, came out before the NDA was finalized and said, we oppose these in a series of administration statements. Congress then got that input incorporated it presumably, and then decided to pass many of these provisions anyway, tweaked in certain ways to address certain constitutional concerns, things like that. Now the signing statement says, well, these provisions are on the book, but we think they raise constitutional concerns. We think they encroach upon the commander in chief authority or the president's authority over foreign affairs or his appointments authority or exec executive privilege. The issue there is that we don't know exactly where the line is. 
it's going to be a question about when is it that the executive branch, if ever, because it may never choose to not comply with these provisions, but at some point it may say, well, we don't think we're constitutionally, we're obligated to abide by these because we have the exclusive constitutional authority to do it. Congress can't stop us from doing it. Uh, and these restrictions go too far. And where that line is on most of these is really ambiguous. And so in presenting a signing statement, identifying these sorts of provisions, now it's up to Congress to keep an eye on how the president is actually implementing these and say, do we think they're doing it reasonably? Do we think that they are not advancing very broad visions of executive branch authority uh, that far exceed what Congress does. And then it has to come back next year or through other less subsequent legislation and take additional steps if it thinks the executive branch is acting in an inappropriate way. A great example of this is that last year, the NDAA asked for several large reports, uh, I think starting in March of this past year, about a U.S. strategy in Syria, a U.S. strategy in Iraq, a U.S. strategy regarding counter-ISIL efforts. And the administration, as far as we know, never provided these. Now, this year, this NDAA comes back and says, we are only giving you 50% of the funding that you've asked for and that we're allocating for these sorts of efforts until you give us those reports. Oh, and another report on top of that with some additional questions for you. In, in some cases, only one or two, the executive branch is now pushing back on those. We have to keep an eye and see, well, to what extent are they going to be forthcoming about this and how is this actually going to impact their operations? And we as the electorate also need to pay attention because ultimately it is the voting incentives for both branches that's going to drive some sort of accommodation on this. Uh, so again, this is a process going to be ongoing, and these are just kind of flags for what we need to be watching moving forward. I, I'm looking forward to seeing NDAA provisions feature heavily in congressional campaigns across the country this fall. <laughs> Give the people what they want. <laughs> My perfect Federal universe, Federal appropriations perhaps. law. <laughs> Authorizations law, not appropriations. Uh, right. Yet. That's the next that's thing. The next that's the next thing. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of uh, executive authority. That was good. Thank you. Speaking of executive authority, uh, the Justice Department has finally canned FBI agent Peter Strzok uh, following uh, an IG investigation that uh, resulted in a report and made a recommendation. Uh, the recommendation, I believe, was for suspension, right? The, the IG just referred it to the uh, OPR, the Office of Professional Responsibility. OPR recommended suspension, which the deputy director overturned and fired him. Okay. Uh, so this is the end, we thought, of a long saga where President Trump was campaigning on Twitter against these two FBI agents whose work, um, particularly Peter Strzok's work, became part of the Mueller investigation. Uh, with Peter Strzok now out, However, we, we've seen just in the, the day since it happened, uh, Trump kind of escalating his tweet campaign, uh, talking again about, oh, oh, if only we had a real attorney general, um, naming another, uh, FBI agent who is not actually involved in the Mueller investigation, but somebody he, that President Trump claims is biased. So, Ben, where is this campaign, uh, White House campaign against the FBI going from here? Well, I don't think we know the answer to that question. I mean, and one thing that's not clear at all is to what extent the action against Peter Strzok was a part of that or a response to that or a action by the FBI on the merits, perhaps with one eye on the White House when it did it. So how exactly it interacts with uh, the president tweeting individually about the guy is a little bit hard to know. 
I mean, I, I do think it's worth sort of pausing for a moment to talk about the firing itself, even though I, I do think like the, the more important big question mark is, you know, what comes next? And I, I think the answer to your question is, of course, there's going to be, you know, this campaign is going to be ongoing because it was never really about individual FBI agents. This was never actually about, you know, Trump thinking that that uh, some individual person had it out for him or should be fired. It's about, you know, trying to undermine uh, the, the Bureau in general, independent law enforcement, the Mueller in investigation, distraction from whatever other bad headline is coming out, uh, you know, about him, I, I would say that week, but really that day, that hour, that minute. Um, you know, and, and I do, I think the FBI got this wrong. And I don't think it got it wrong because they're secretly Trumpists that were, were carrying out Trump's sort of Twitter uh, har- harassment campaign. You know, Director Ray was really clear whenever he said, you know, we're going to do this by the book. We're going to do this by the book. Um, you know, we're going to follow the procedures. And I think a lot of people read that to say, well, that probably means Strzok is going to end up being fired because it means that it's going to be referred to OPR. And OPR always recommends that people get fired. That's what they love to do. They're, this is this is not an organization or, or uh, an office that is known for restraining itself whenever it comes to disciplinary action. And so whenever OPR made the recommendation that he be demoted and for a 60-day suspension. Then you have the FBI deputy director, David Bowditch, who is, um, you know, well-respected, well-thought-of, you know, I, I don't think anybody believes he's a partisan hack or anything else, coming in and, and overruling that decision. And it's not that that's not by the book, right? This The, F, the deputy director of the FBI, you know, gets the recommendation and, and makes the decision. It's that by deviating from the recommendation, they then have opened up the question of, well, wait a minute, were there political considerations here? And I think there were political considerations because I, I think the, the deputy director of the FBI is looking at, you know, what's uh, what's coming out on the Hill, uh, looking at the harassment campaign from the president and thinking maybe he personally disagrees and, and thinks that this is a fireable offense. And and so he says, you know, I'm going to fire the guy because it's better politically for the bureau or, or it's, it's the best thing for the FBI is for this guy to be dismissed. And the problem is, is that it inadvertently achieves exactly the thing that he's trying to defend against. I think he wants to close the book on this chapter that undermines the integrity of the Bureau. In doing it, he further undermines the integrity of the Bureau because it raises, I think, reasonable questions in people's minds about, well, do you have individual employees that are being treated fairly, you know, or do we have an entirely different set of rules because President Trump happens to learn your name, uh, you know, and and decides he wants to ruin your life on Twitter? And and it is one thing that is very unclear in all of this, and there was like a many hundred page uh, uh, IG report and then this uh, OPR action and the deputy director's action, nobody has said what rule did Pete Strzok violate? And like, I don't like. I mean, it's it was all framed in the sense of what would in the military be called conduct unbecoming. right? Right. And conduct unbecoming an officer is a rule, right? That under the uniform code of military justice, you are obliged as an officer to behave in certain ways. And if you don't, you can be charged with conduct on becoming an officer. There is no conduct on becoming an FBI agent. Now, the, like, what is the rule that it violates to say nasty things about a presidential candidate whose campaign or, or people on the periphery of whose campaign you are engaged in a counterintelligence investigation against 
in a private text message to somebody or to another FBI uh, agent or uh, uh, official with whom you happen to be having an affair. I, I just want to know what rule that violates. I think that's exactly right. And what I would say about this is that going back to Susan's point about how much this shows, frankly, the, the self-destructiveness of President Trump's Twitter habit. Here, we saw President Trump's tweets come out and link the struck firing first to the investigation against him, the so-called witch hunt, and then later to alleged you know, improprieties regarding the investigation into sec- uh, Secretary Clinton or her campaign, at least, and then also saying we should be reopening these. This has to buck some sort of whatever the official determination of so why he's fired that the FBI is at some point going to have to generate if it hasn't already and is going to become public. And so it's going to end up in a situation where you have a divide that is politically significant, certainly, as Susan noted, between what the White House is saying about why he's fired it and, by the way, the president saying I was personally involved, whereas at least the official narrative was that this was done at the deputy director level. By the book. By the book, exactly. Whereas the president being involved would decidedly not be by the book, whatever book that may be. But on top of that, you know, there's very little to no chance of there being any sort of legal legal remedy here. It's very unlikely he'll be able to pursue any sort of suit. But one can imagine at least an argument for one. And if you were, these are the sort of facts you would want. You would want the president saying, I fired this individual personally for these totally different reasons than what the FBI said. And that departure of narrative opens us up to legal risk, that however slim, not something that the president didn't need to have on his plate and is just going to extend this whole narrative. So I want to um, take what you said, Scott, and come back to Susan's point earlier, because it seems to me that there's a self-destructiveness that you describe on the president's part here, but there's also a degree of self-destructiveness in the FBI's behavior. And it reminds me very much of the Justice Department's response to the Nunes uh, subpoenas, you know, which is to say, okay, well, we'll give a little bit to to take the heat off our backs, right? But what they end up doing is you know, in the gangster terms that seem so appropriate to our current political moment, um, by uh, not looking tough enough, by looking like they're ready to cave a little bit, they they just make themselves vulnerable to a lot more pressure. I think that's right. And look, you have on that point, you have Rudy Giuliani this morning tweeting that uh, seeing the FISA order was not enough. Now they need to see the affidavits that went into the FISA order, right? I and mean, this is a bunch of nonsense. And so by engaging with it at all, you are legitimizing it. And and I, I think you're right. That's a it's a dangerous and foolish game. To to play. I, I do think there's one thing that's sort of missing from the headlines of sort of the latest firing or the, you know, the latest person leaving and, and it is the latest in a string and I, I think there will be people in the future. And that's the individual cost of this stuff. These are individual people who served their country for a long time and and I'm not, you know, condoning any particular behavior, you know, but uh, uh, people make mistakes and they should be judged for those mistakes by a set of neutral principles. Uh, you know, they should be given credit for their service. Uh, you know, and this this notion that you have a president of the United States bullying American citizens, and, and I think in meaningful ways, ruining their lives. I mean, just doing these unbelievable things, and and that that has somehow become normal is is just something that is so incredibly stunning to me. And, and I agree with Scott. I don't think that there's a legal remedy, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if he decides to to at least pursue a court case, I think in part to just to vindicate sort of the, you know, the, the dignity of it all. Yeah, I'm not sure there's no legal remedy. There's pretty uncharted 
territory because, you know, presidents actually don't do this. And um, while the president has a lot of discretion in this area, uh, it really, you know, since the president has all but tweeted that I'm retaliating against this guy for First Amendment protected activity and I hate him because of things he said to Lisa Page. I am arbitrarily and capriciously, capriciously. firing this person. <laughs> right. Since the president has all but said things like that, I do think you get into some pretty interesting uh, terrain that uh, I would not want to be the FBI general counsel trying to defend. And I imagine even if you lose on the merits, what kind of discovery you could get if you're actually able to get past the motion to dismiss on this sort of thing. Like it could be pretty, pretty devastating from the White House's perspective. And also further damaging to the FBI as an institution. Absolutely. So I'll just note quickly that while all of that may be true with respect to this specific case, um, because of the president's uh, lack of self-constraint, if you will, in expression, um, there are a whole lot of other public servants who have been smeared by the Trump campaign, by people in the White House, by affiliates of uh, Trump in the media um, who don't have access to those kinds of remedies because the president himself has not fired them. He, um, they've just been, you know, accused of uh, disloyalty uh, and and shunted into jobs where basically their careers are dead ended. And um, there are probably many, many more of those people than we even know about, sadly. Um, all right, let's move on to object lessons. I have no segue to get us to object lessons. So I'm just going to say, hey, Ben, what's your object? My object lesson, I actually have two object lessons. The first is, you know, uh, speaking of former FBI officials, FBI's longtime general counsel, Jim Baker, recently came to Brookings and to Lawfare and has been uh, quietly laboring away on a, uh, a series of articles uh, on artificial intelligence and counterintel, uh, the first of which uh, was posted to Lawfare today. So for all of you wondering, hey, what has Jim Baker been up to at Lawfare since he uh, left the FBI? Uh, check it out. The second thing is a large uh, stack of papers that showed up on my desk uh, this morning uh, called a Sextortion Report um, by uh, Katie Kelly, whom I have sitting right here. And uh, Katie has been uh, one of our interns this summer and has uh, spent the summer following up on a lengthy report that uh, Quinta Jurassic and Cody Poplin and Clara Spira and I did a couple years ago on uh, sexual extortion online, which prosecutors colloquially call sextortion. And uh, she left a large pile of her research on my desk. And rather than uh, tell you about it, I'm just going to have her tell you about it. So Katie, what'd you find? So in the past few years, I have identified cases of identified perpetrators and accounts of victims coming forward saying that they've been victimized in this manner, both internationally and domestically. And altogether, there have been 116 identified perpetrators in the past two years and 49 identified victims accounts in the past two years. And as I said, this happens everywhere in the globe 
on every single continent. It's both sextortion for sexual gain and for financial gain. I will be publishing something shortly about it and encourage you to keep an eye out. Wow. So that's like a double object because the stack of paper is an object and Katie is objectified. For the yeah, we're, we're, we're going to try not to objectify Katie. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, we, we will be trying to, uh, we'll be writing up this, this work. Uh, and, you know, the bottom line is that the pattern that we identified in that report, which is that these are a large number of cases involving a large number of perps, and a shocking number of victims is continued very much so in the two years since we did that work. Okay. Scott, you have an object. I do. I don't have it with me yet, but hopefully I will. You're supposed to pretend. I'm, you I'm pretending. I don't think it's technically released yet, but I will have it imminently. My understanding is that Amazon has shipped it to my house or will shortly. Uh, and that's a new book out uh, that I'm very excited about. It's a little bit of a departure, but I think it'll be interesting to rational security listeners. It's called The Color of Time by one Marina Amaral and a co-author whose name has escaped me. Uh, Marina is a very talented colorist of photograph photographs, I should say, has made this inc- got an incredible Twitter following and online following of people following her, taking old historical photographs and colorizing them. It doesn't sound that amazing. It's genuinely really amazing. And everyone should go follow her on Twitter and find her work and find this book. The most powerful examples to me uh, have been these incredible portraits she has of people who are at concentration camps during World War II uh, who were killed at those concentration camps. She colorizes them and makes them seem so much more real and immediate and like a historical contemporary. And she does this with so many of these historical figures. The book itself, as I understand, I'm reading sadly not here. Uh, like Katie has to tell us exactly what she wrote. Uh, but from my understanding, it's uh, from excerpts I've seen, it's a series of kind of historical vignettes about 100 years from 1850 to 1960 uh, with historical photos that she's colorized and describing with these sorts of vignettes how they fit into this broader historical narrative. But the pictures are really powerful. And I think it really when you see these pictures in color, it's so hard to dismiss them as the past. It's so hard to dismiss them as an era that wasn't ours, that somehow isn't relate to our modern era like we tend to do with black and white history. Uh Instead, it really makes us realize that those were extraordinary times. We may be living through very similar, sometimes upsettingly similar, extraordinary times today. Uh, so I really think it's worth a look and uh, encourage everyone to seek it out. Cool. That sounds very, very interesting. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode. And thank God, because Shane Shane's will be back, back next week. <laughs> and you won't have to put up with me. Uh, pathetically attempting to host the you show. You did in his a very absence. good job. Yeah, you did very you did good better job. than we did. I I wrote it down. It's That's, true. Shane I, is better than all of us, but then it goes to Tammy, <laughs> then Ben, and I'm going to rank myself. Okay, last. just I'm I'm not nominating myself next time. Yeah, for you're, sure. you're, the secret you're, is that Shane wears those sunglasses from the photo throughout every shoot. <laughs> All the time. So he, people don't realize when they're listening. Yeah, he looks cool no but matter what. Can he does. she pull off the making up the band name? Well, trick? let's see. <laughs> Rational Security is a production of Lawfare, and you can find our show page on the Lawfare website at www.lawfareblog.com forward slash topic forward slash rational hyphen security. How'd I do with that, Ben? Picture perfect. Today's show uh, was sound engineered by the estimable Matthew Kahn and was produced by the invaluable Jen Patya Howell. Our music today was performed by Donald Trump and the military set pieces, who also right. record as the patriotic optics. All right. Pretty All good. Right. I think that's pretty good. That's good. That's good. <laughs> okay. It's, it's very a, respectable. It's a, it's a stretch, but I tried, right? Okay. And in fact... 
Our music was performed, as always, by the wonderful Sophia Yan, who is soon heading off to a new gig in Beijing, but somehow, through the magic of digital recording, will be with us on Rational Security forever. And is in our hearts. (laughs) And just want to say special shout out to the guy who emailed me about, uh, I I forget your name, but uh, after last week's AMA show, where we said what the track was that Sophia was playing and that it was by Astor Piazzolla, emailed me his favorite Astor Piazzolla recording. And that was seriously classy. And I've listened to it. And it's really wonderful. So thank you. Awesome. Uh, So that's it for us this week. But we will be back for you next week with Shane Harris in studio. Until then, bye bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 